It's the 17th of September, 2017, and this is episode 344 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hey. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey. Bitcoin Cash has been out for a little while. And one of the things that makes it different from Bitcoin was the decision to put in a kind of change to the difficulty adjustment algorithm that, or it's not really a change to the adjustment algorithm. It's an additional kind of step that can be taken. It's called the emergency difficulty adjustment. Andreas, can you kind of explain this briefly to us? And then we'll kind of talk about what's going on with it. Yes. Well, as you probably know, Bitcoin Cash, also known derisively as Bcash, was launched by a fairly small minority of the hashing power, about 4 to 6% at the time of launch. And because this was anticipated to cause problems, an emergency diffie adjustment algorithm was introduced into the code. So traditionally what happens in Bitcoin is the difficulty adjusts every 2016 blocks. It's really important to realize the difficulty adjustment is based on blocks, not time. And so if you go in with 5% of the hash rate, or if the hash rate drops by 95%, whichever way you want to look at it, uh, that means the blocks will take 20 times longer to do. So instead of 10 minutes, your block rate will be about 200 minutes between blocks. And that obviously is unacceptable. Even if you've increased capacity, that's going to lead to big problems and delays. So in order to avoid that, because 200 minute blocks times 2016 blocks until the next difficulty adjustment is an awfully long time, Bcash introduced this emergency difficulty adjustment. Every single block, the system checks the last six blocks and counts how long it's taken. If it's taken over 12 hours to do the last six blocks, then the difficulty is automatically decreased by 20%. This happens every single block. And as a result, when it was first launched, you had a big gap where very few blocks were mined during the first 12 hours. And then the difficulty started ratcheting down rapidly for the next six blocks until it was about one-fifth of the original difficulty. And now you can start seeing blocks happen quickly. So that's what they put into the protocol. How different is Bitcoin Cash from Bitcoin Poor? Was that like one of the only major differences or are there others? I'm not familiar with this. It was a block size hard fork. And I believe it also implements the emergent consensus, but I'm not entirely sure about that. So it's a dynamically adjusted block in addition to an immediate block increase to eight megabytes. Mm-hmm. Okay. If I'm recalling it correctly, back in 2014, it was the summer of the script alts. And uh, the issue was all of these script pools would jump around the second it was more profitable to mine one coin than the other, quite literally, because they just jump onto the exchange. So an altcoin whose name escapes me right now invented the per block difficulty readjustment system. And then basically every script coin uh, adopted it, including Dogecoin. I believe Doge now still has that, that aspect to it because of the days when pools would just jump on and off altcoin contingent on 
there being a price demand for the token that, that they still have that to this day. So I believe until Bcash, that was the largest example of a system that used per block retargeting because I don't believe Litecoin does that either. Well, it does per block retargeting, but only if there is more than 12 hours in the last six blocks on a rolling average, right? So similar, but because it only works in a 12-hour, across a 12-hour delay period, and it only ratchets down and not up the other way, what it leads to is gaming of the system. So we saw that almost immediately. I think it's a cautionary tale of why conservative coding when it comes to minor incentives is important because miners will game the system for short-term gains. And in Bitcoin Cash, it's become a complete joke in terms of gaming it. I want to hear about the gaming. Just on at first glance, it sounds like you'd have to be really far off on the difficulty. If it's taking 12 hours to mine six blocks, supposed to be a block every 10 minutes. I mean, it's got to be pretty bad before the difficulty starts to adjust, no? Well, that's why it's called an emergency difficulty adjustment. Yeah, it's, it's only intended for sort of emergency use, but it hasn't in practice behaved like that. It's been used more than you would suspect. Yeah, it just sounds like it's hard to create that situation, but I want to hear more about it. All right, so here's how you create exactly that situation. <laughs> So what happened in the beginning is 5% of the hashing rates was available. That compared to the previous chain, which was the Bitcoin chain, meant that blocks were very, very slow. The first 12 hours saw, in fact, I think only three blocks. And as a result, after 12 hours, the emergency difficulty adjustment kicked in. We reduced everything by 20%. Then after another couple of hours passed, another block came out. Emergency difficulty adjustment kicked in again, again, again three or four times in a row until it ratcheted things down enough that they were more than six blocks every 12 hours. So then it became more profitable to mine Bcash. And so the miners piled on. And what that did was it created a difficulty adjustment in the opposite direction after 2016 blocks, or what should be two weeks. At which point, when the difficulty ratcheted up again, the miners abandon the chain almost completely. Hash rate goes almost down to zero. 12 hours later, difficulty adjustment starts ratcheting down aggressively. The miners all pile back in. At this point, much hash rate. Blocks start coming out every minute or so. The next difficulty adjustment happens much sooner. It shoots straight up again. They all abandon the chain. Emergency difficulty adjustment triggers again, and they start gaming it. So now they've got two modes. Bcash is either mining no blocks for two days, or it's mining a block every two minutes. And it's basically whiplashing between these two extremes as the miners game the system. They're purposely abandoning the chain to force it to trigger an emergency difficulty adjustment after 12 hours by grinding to a halt. And then mining as much as they can, milking the rewards from all of the investors who bought Bcash or didn't sell Bcash. And then uh, as soon as the difficulty goes up again, abandon it again, rinse and repeat. And they've been doing that pretty much since the beginning. So it sounds like it's a cartel, right? The miners are behaving like a cartel where they're all acting together. But 
the thing with cartels is they don't work long term because somebody always breaks it because they get greedy and they want to be the first in or whatever. So this is incentive driven, though. I mean, that's the thing that's different. Yeah, this isn't a cartel. This is an incentive system that is basically poorly thought out, I think, and creates what is now called a coin hopping attack. Uh, pretty much the lesson that wasn't learned in the alt chains in 2014 and has to be retaught again. It's not a cartel because it doesn't matter what the other miners do. In fact, it requires no collusion. Everybody's going completely by self-motive. Is it really profitable to do Bcash right now? Okay, pile on, mine as hard as you can. A difficulty goes up, no longer profitable, leave. And the, the problem is that because of the way the incentives are structured, instead of that being a dampening oscillation that over time peters out, right? If you try to do that on Bitcoin, because there's no emergency difficulty adjustment, it would act as a damper and the oscillation would eventually normalize. But in Bitcoin Cash, because of the emergency difficulty adjustment, it actually amplifies this oscillation. And it becomes completely ridiculous. No blocks for two days, blocks every minute. Well, I was just going to put my conspiracy hat on. And when Andres, you described Vcash as having, a, you know, a, a broken incentive mechanics for miners, I thought the whole purpose of Vcash was to be a broken incentive framework for miners. <laughs> I thought that's how the entire chain came into existence, was that uh, Jihan didn't like the removal of ASIC boost and just decided to fork Bitcoin to keep it. <laughs> when you look at the incentive structure of Bcash, I just always assumed it was the version of Bitcoin made expressly to maximize the interest of the miners. So the fact that there is some exacerbated extreme that really only neg has the miners massively reward while negative externalizing that to everyone else in the network just sounds exactly like what a miner's fork of Bitcoin would act like and look like and behave like. Yeah, I mean, it, that's that's basically a, a, a normative assessment that would have to look at what the incentives and intentions of the miners are. And, you know, I'm not really going to go there. Well, I, I personally think the end user of Bcash are Bitcoin miners, not holders, not transactions, not currency, just the miners. It's, it's like a flower company that ships flowers and the trucking company are the only uh, stock employees. So they just keep voting to make the shipping more and more expensive. And that's basically the embodiment of Bcash. So, I mean, the fact that the miners just voted to, you know, increase shipping fees by $5 doesn't in any way surprise me. On the slightly less people are colluding to do this stuff perspective, my instinct takes me more towards the incentives. And what I see when I'm looking at this mechanism is, as Andreas said, it's a one-way mechanism, right? It's an asymmetrical mechanism that allows for, under certain extreme circumstances, for the difficulty to be lowered, but there's no counterbalancing. It seems like perhaps the asymmetrical nature of it is the problem. And if you had something that, say, if you had 24 blocks inside of, you know, an hour period, which is four times the amount that should be in that, then it, you know, has some sort of kind of corresponding reduction. Let, let me give you an example, which is, I think, a good analogy, because it's essentially the same oscillating feedback loop with an asymmetric response. Imagine if you designed a cruise control for your car and you set it to 70 miles an hour, and your car is cruising along at 68, 69, 70, and as soon as it hits 71, the car's cruise control slams on the brakes and it slams as hard as it can until the, the speed drops below 70. And then it starts very gently accelerating back up. What's going to happen the first time is you're going to drop to about fifth. Then it's going to take half a mile to get up to 71. 
Then you're going to slam down. This time you might even hit 30. And, and it's going to go into this oscillating pattern where it's accelerating very slowly. It takes forever. So your car is either not moving at all and burning rubber on rapid deceleration, or it's very, very slowly accelerating back up to the speeds, and you have this very jerky transition where the passengers are getting whiplash. Well, the passengers are their investors in Bcash, and I don't know, well, the miners are probably investors in brake calipers and tires, because they're going to wear those things out and make a lot of money in the way. Okay, I think that that's an interesting analogy. So adding a mechanism on the other side kind of doesn't solve the problem. It just adds another problem on the other side. <laughs> yeah, and, and we can speculate as to why this was done and whether the outcome could have been predicted or not. But the truth is that this outcome was predicted and in fact was criticized by many developers mostly on the core side, whose intentions were questioned just because they're on the core side. And they did predict that this would happen, and it did happen. Now, whether that was intentional or not, I really don't care to speculate. The end result is that if you're trying to use Bcash, you're being taken for a ride. So I just looked it up, and the technology from 2014 that was invented for this exact problem that existed when there were a multitude of script coins that had exactly this problem occur. Now that we have two major SHA-256 coins, this is going to happen again, is called DigiShield. And it was made for, I believe, a, a, a token called DigiCoin. And back in 2014, they made a per, a per jo- uh, block difficulty upward and downward readjustment uh, schema specifically because of mining pools jumping back and forth on their system. So um, I know that Dogecoin implemented it. And if I were thinking of breaking a hash rate in two or not successfully breaking a hash rate in two, I couldn't imagine someone not looking at DigiShield and how the script market worked in the summer of 2014 and not looking at thinking the exact same thing would happen to Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. So you're still on the conspiracy side, Jonathan, (laughs) that it was purposeful? Well, I I tend to think that people are, um, let's say, if if there are an inordinate financial interest at stake, I tend to think that gross incompetence is something... That is a suspicious explanation because we're talking about two people who have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of collateral at stake that are told that this is going to occur and are aware of a very prominent example of how to do multiple chains using the same hash rate difficulty retargeting and decided to do something a tenth as sophisticated as something that was already available. It just sort of boggles my mind to the level of sheer incompetence necessary to do the inferior solution. So in that case, you know, I look at this and I'll, I'll I'll tell you that to me, it seems like a colossal mistake of strategy because what it does is it puts tactics and short-term profits of the broader economic strategy that, that this is part of. And, and the, the, the point is that if Bitcoin Cash was intended to provide an outlet for frustrated people who wanted a bigger block size, and at the same time, by providing that outlet, has taken out some of the momentum and deflated the enthusiasm behind Segwit2x. So it it does cause some damage to that camp because people can say, well, you've got Bitcoin Cash. Why do we need to also change the other chain and maybe split again? In that case, you'd probably want to make something that works for users so that the alternative, the larger block size, can have enough transactions to justify its increased capacity. You've got an eight base block size coin here that is trying to compete against Bitcoin, and it's managing on average 50k 
kilobyte blocks because it can't get enough transactions and has been rendered pretty much unusable by these oscillations. That's really self-sabotaging in some way. It's like, yay, you won the battle and maybe made some mining profits to undermine the entire premise of a big block solution by doing so. I, I don't understand. I don't understand how people can be so blind as to the longer strategic damage this is doing just to make a short-term profit. It seems stupid to me. So what's going to happen with Bitcoin Cash? Is it totally broken? Are people just going to stop using it because they're sick of going for the roller coaster ride and they don't want to wait two days for their block or for their transaction to confirm and they don't want to put money in the pockets of (laughs) corrupt miners? I I think the evidence so far is that people who are ideologically opposed to uh, Bitcoin's current roadmap and core's influence over Bitcoin will use anything, even if it's half broken, just to support an ideological stance at the expense of their profitability and even the usability of the system. I can't see it succeeding like this, but perhaps it's going to stabilize over time and miners will game it less, in which case they will have managed to extract a whole lot of profit from the people who ended up buying this coin. Well, I think it'll be interesting to check back with someone like Ryan X. Charles in maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months and see how his experience has been because he went from Bitcoin to Litecoin and now to Bitcoin Cash. Oh, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) He's on the roller coaster too. (laughs) Very much so. Yeah. He's one of the very few people I know who's really kind of jumped onto Bitcoin Cash with an actual project that, you know, has a product and stuff like that. They're still pretty early in their process, but they've, I think, you know, they're on LiveNet and stuff like that. So. Uh, will be good to get their perspective in a while. But uh, on the subject of projects, so ICOs have been in the news, of course, because they've been you know raising lots and lots of money. And there have been increasing numbers of scams, as we've talked about on kind of past shows. But there was some recent news out of China that basically put a complete stop to all ICOs coming out of China, has led to a number of ICOs um, refunding buyers who put money in from China, and in general has at least a temporary kind of pausing effect where prices on everything went down for a day or two. And then actually it seemed like the market got over it pretty quickly and things were back to normal. So the decision that China's made to kind of put the stop to all of these ICOs is interesting from a number of different perspectives. Jonathan, what do you think the momentum is here behind this? And is this a permanent change or is this the start? Um, I, I feel like I need to be choice with my words because of the projects I may be involved with. But it doesn't surprise me. I think the funniest thing is that when the chips fall, we may find America the the largest industrialized nation that has the least draconian laws as it relates to business activities one can do on blockchain. And that might be sort of a, a very funny journey that we find ourselves on in blockchain in a few years. I don't know. It's, it's really interesting to see the China ban. I know that they basically put the kibosh on token sale related events, but simultaneously Vitalik is doing a conference on the 14th with all day 10 minute pitches of people for their token sales. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how that's going to occur next week. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's, you know, may you live in interesting times as the adage goes. Yeah. The rumor that I've been hearing is that what we're seeing now is very analogous to what we saw a couple of years ago. Stephanie, if you recall, was it a couple of years ago? I keep saying that to people, but it might have just been earlier this year where China shut down all of the exchanges for a couple of months and then things and they put new rules in place, went and kind of investigated things. And then they put a framework in place that allowed Chinese exchanges to open back up again. Yeah, that's right. That was a couple of years ago. 
And uh, yeah, everything seems to have recovered just fine from that. What it seems like they like to do is they like to go in and make big visible statements that put push everything to a stop and make everybody, you know, fearful so that they stop taking action. And then they kind of take time to sort it out and talk with people in the background and then they roll out new rules. That's my expectation on what's happening here. Andreas, what are your thoughts on the on the China action? I, I'm not surprised. I mean, um, as as Jonathan said, I'm I'm surprised that the that the SEC hasn't taken a, an equally strong stance, and I'm appalled by some of the things that are happening in the ICO market. Now, keep, keep in mind, I'm absolutely not in favor of state regulation of uh, securities the way it's done in a very traditional conservative way through the SEC because it's it's rife for corruption it doesn't prevent fraud and uh, it vests the gatekeepers with enormous power and that's a problem in my mind it moves too slow can't adapt to new technologies can't adapt to innovation and puts enormous burden and of course it's it's elitist in its very nature because a accredited investor is basically a shorthand for rich person has nothing to do with how much knowledge you have of economics or market trading strategies or any of that it's it's only about your net worth is that's appalling to me as a principle but in any case bottom line is this i think we should have new ways of managing risk in offerings to the public and they shouldn't be by relegating the trust to a centralized institution to act as a vetter for us because that absolves consumers and investors of all responsibility and all opportunity to learn from their mistakes. I don't think the state should be our ultimate recourse here. I think it's much more important to educate investors to make better choices and if they lose their money they have to learn from those mistakes because that's a better and more sustainable approach as they say you know if it's not about eradicating the wolves it's about armoring the sheep <laughs> and it's a much more effective strategy to have investors themselves be better prepared and more on the defensive and better educated uh, that, that's not the emphasis of the sec in fact it does quite the opposite it disarms the sheeps uh, and says, don't worry, we've got the wolf problem handled, which of course is not true. I'm actually also just tickled by the fact that all of these decentralized libertarians out there are suddenly applauding the Chinese state for prescribing solutions in the most top-down and authoritarian way possible as the right approach. That seems to be intellectually dishonest to me. Who are you talking about? Just asking because I haven't heard that, but... It's a maximalist position, and this is also true. There are also Ethereum maximalists, of course, as well, um, but I think there are more on the Bitcoin side. And basically, they see anything that isn't done within their ecosystem as taking away from their ecosystem. So the difference is they see it as a zero-sum game most of the time, where any gain from anything else is a loss for their project. And I think that's that's the primary difference is people, many people see that this ecosystem can be much larger than single ecosystems. Right. And drawing conclusions from the summer of 2014 and the outchains, some of those pundits are gloating over the fact that Ethereum is suffering a setback because of this ICO ban and it's and it's naked schadenfreude and really not intellectually honest. If you're against regulators, you know, interfering in free market capitalism until it doesn't suit you anymore, that's really poor reasoning. So I, I mean, 
at the same time, it's it's totally human, right? We're we're all hypocrites. It's it's very easy to have integrity when it's convenient. Confirmation bias and being blind to to one's own biases is is human nature. So at the same time, I do understand it. It's just when it gets so blatant that it is a bit jarring. Well, my my great disillusionment with Bitcoin maximalists occurred in 2014 when the Ethereum project got just completely slammed by everyone in the Bitcoin community because of a mistaken Google auto-translate uh, text-to-speech conversion. When Charles Hoskinson said, we even have someone who worked at Goldman Sachs and the translation said work, and then there became this conspiracy theory that Goldman Sachs was uh, behind Ethereum. We even had people at uh, Goldman Sachs congratulating the Ethereum team and it was this disgusting thing and everyone had to talk about it and dissuade it and say, no, it's not. We don't even know what you're talking about. And then a year goes by and Coinbase closes a round actually with Goldman Sachs. And all of the same people were elated. They were happy. They couldn't. They were over the moon. This was exactly the accreditation that Bitcoin needed. And that's when I realized, oh, just like in every other sphere of life, 98% of you lack any and all integrity except when it's convenient. Tribalism rules every single time, and it's clear in this particular space. So uh, on a recent episode of Epicenter Bitcoin, uh, I believe it's episode 198, they had uh, Nick Morgan on, who is a former attorney for the SEC's Enforcement Division. And that's a really worthwhile listen if anybody's kind of wondering what the perspective of someone who's been in the room, you know, on on some of these not necessarily ICO related cases, but on other enforcement actions. And basically, the argument that he makes is that people are expecting too much from the SEC because the SEC is actually having its funding cut when, you know, like somebody leaves the job, they don't replace them. And really, the only thing that they have bandwidth to go after are the cases that are actual straightforward fraud. So like the Josh Garzas of the world, you know, the uh, Bitcoin savings and trusts of the world, Butterfly Labs, they went after that. Yeah. So like, so those are the types of projects that they're going after. For me, again, the big projects that are like, there, there are people who have been pushing the line in terms of what is a security, you know, token offering for just years. And so I've just kind of been waiting for those people to have some sort of comeuppance or some sort of anything. And from what I can tell, it seems like that isn't going to happen. It seems like mostly it's just going to be the actual, like that's actually a Ponzi scheme and there's no miners back there. They're just taking your money and paying you with other people's money because that's really easy for them to go after. And all of this other stuff is kind of not really settled. So I think what you just said is that we're going to have four years of ICOs because the Donald Trump administration made it so <laughs> that, that budgetary cuts and higher increases from the federal level to the SEC is going to give everyone with good intentions, non-malice in their soul, the capacity to bring about the blockchain revolution. It does seem like that is a potential. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Well, you know, there are many things you can knock the guy on, but destroying the federal government in this <laughs> single instance seems to be working out for this industry. Well, to tie together like everything that came up during this conversation, the ICO mechanism of raising funds is interesting and new way to raise money, and it's probably here to stay. Despite whatever kind of regulations get thrown at it, it's going to be around. I'm a little bit biased here. <laughs> We're getting ready to actually launch a token sale for Tokenly. So, you know, I think that it's an incredibly empowering mechanism. Before we did this, you know, we helped other companies use it to raise money back before when they were calling it uh, ICOs back when we were just talking about it like token sales. So yeah, as a mechanism, it's been great. This year, we've just seen such an explosion in its use. 
that on the one hand, it's showing just how empowering this is, but it's also showing the environment that we're in is one where any opportunity to get some type of outsized yield is so attractive that money is coming in from places that didn't care at all about Bitcoin. But now that suddenly there's this speculative opportunity that exists because of all this kind of excitement around this idea, uh, things have changed. So I think that there's no question that it's around for a long time. I hope what we see is a shakeout of the projects that are not just the scams, but that are actually just not well-developed projects. Because that's really the problem, is that they're biased towards projects that don't exist and that aren't likely to deliver anything useful for years. And it's because those are the projects that are built around these kind of broad idea world-changing protocols. And all of those things might be true in five or 10 years, but we're a long ways off from that. And most of the challenges that are being tackled now are challenges that are going to take that long at least and make a lot of kind of underlying assumptions about the technology moving forward in the meantime. So you're seeing people who have real businesses who are now trying to figure out how to do an ICO, but struggling because they have $200,000 in revenue <laughs> per month. And that actually limits their ability to raise funds compared to a project that has no revenue at all. This isn't a new problem to companies. This has always been the case uh, in kind of the tech sector, too, is that it's kind of a running joke. It's actually worse to have flat growth and a lot of revenue than it is to have, you know, no revenue and like a predictable upward growth slope that people can extrapolate out from. This even applies to the deepest of markets. So if you look at pharmaceuticals, what always happens when a drug gets approved by the, the FDA, uh, the stock price goes down. Because the, the drug pharmaceutical company promises their shareholders the world about what it can do and what it can't do and how they can sell it and how it'll be regulated. And then the second the FDA gives them their approval, every single actuary just inputs the approval into their tables and then knows exactly how to evaluate it. And it's always less than the moon that they were promised. Expectation is always greater than reality. I would look at this in terms of time frame dissonance. On a long time frame, I think this technology is one of the killer apps for global open decentralized blockchains. It will absolutely disrupt the shit out of venture capital. It will bridge the gap between organic funding and stock markets and probably disrupt both ends of that spectrum very, very radically. And it's going to open up to a massive global pool of investors and startups and take the fundraising business out of Silicon Valley and turn it into a global phenomenon. That is, in my mind, absolutely going to happen one way or another, and it's going to happen primarily by completely bypassing regulations and finding ways to squeeze outside regulations or simply arbitrage jurisdictions. That's the long term. In the short term, 99.99% of these are greedy scam artists who are going to take the money, run away, spend it all on blow and prostitutes, and produce absolutely nothing. All of the investors are going to lose almost all of their money, and it's a complete show that's going to leave a big streak, a stain on the reputation of blockchains for the next several years. Can you hold those two ideas simultaneously in your head, that's the time frame dissonance you need. It is both the greatest thing that's happened to fundraising in the last 20 years and the greatest show that's happened in fundraising in the last 20 years. And both of those things can be true at the same time. But part of the reason it's a shit show is because of the enormous amount of liquidity that is sloshing around world markets as a direct result 
of liquidity injections by central banks, which means that fiat has been chasing dear investments in every single asset class and creating massive bubbles in this desperate attempt to park money somewhere to escape inflation and the coming crash and to generate some yield better than an algorithmic index trader can do, uh, which investors are finding it very difficult to do. And some of that money inevitably will slosh into this new technology market and is as corrupting it and is creating misallocation just like it is in every other market out there. Central banks strike again. Andreas, your your metaphors are very colorful. I'm I'm hearing show liquidity sloshing on the same sentence. It's not a pretty picture, but it's an accurate picture. I agree. And you kind of made the point that I wanted to make, which was that I almost see this almost like the disruptive potential of Bitcoin when it first came out. If it's really that disruptive and it's really going to change the world that much, there's nothing that regulators can do to really rein it in. I mean, someone's just going to leave China. If the Chinese government bans ICOs, okay, they'll just leave China and go raise funds somewhere else. How are they possibly going to return the money to all their investors when they don't even know who their investors are with some of these things? I'm skeptical of how much it, it can be regulated. I'm sure people will find creative ways around it. And yes, a lot of those will be scams because we know that this whole world has a dark, seedy underbelly that's bigger than the light side, <laughs> the bright side of it. I mean, I, I guess I'm just watching to see how it plays out, but I don't think that China banning ICOs is going to stop ICOs at all. Uh, well, I would say the other constructive nuance to their statement that I think is still present, rather implicit, is that they're banning ICOs, but they haven't made a blanket ban of tokens or cryptocurrencies. Because nearly every cryptocurrency, with the exception of Bitcoin and counterparty, were listed through an ICO. So if you're looking at how they're allowing Chinese people to purchase, engage in commerce with tokens, they're allowing it. They just say that Chinese, Amer uh, Chinese citizens excuse me, shouldn't participate in the ICO. So maybe we're just looking at a framework where the ICO engages outside of China, and then the secondary market exposure to purchasing those tokens can occur in China, like currently every single token on the exchanges are able to do. It's just the actual behavior set of the token sale itself that can't occur to Chinese participants. And that's, that's sort of the in between the lines that they don't explicitly state, because as a, as a consequence of the ICO ban, you didn't hear them say, we expect all the exchanges to unwind every Ethereum purchase. We expect all the exchanges to unwind every single, every other token purchase. They just said, do not conduct further sales here. And I, I, I don't know if that nuance is there or if I'm just reading into what's not stated, but I found that very interesting. No, I think you're right, Jonathan. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Hey, here's another thought. We're all pretty clear on the idea that this entire technology is going to disrupt the world of finance. But in my mind, the first thing it disrupts is financial regulators themselves. It disrupts regulation, and it is in fact through the disruption of financial regulation that it disrupts the rest of finance. Regulators are looking at this and saying, how do we control this but yet still allow innovation within financial services, not realizing that the very first thing that gets disrupted is their power to regulate. 
It opens up jurisdiction arbitrage to everyone, not just inter- international multinational companies. It opens up jurisdictional arbitrage to Joe the average investor and Joe the average startup ICO launcher. And as a result, the regulators are increasingly going to be taking impotent powerless measures simply for the effect of theater and the you know uh, front page news to say that they're doing something knowing full well that these measures are increasingly impotent and we're going to see that and the first litmus test here is china says they banned icos now let's see if they can actually enforce that well so one thing that hasn't been mentioned here is that things actually work a little bit differently in china than they do in most other places around the world when it comes to icos so i think that you're all right and we're going to see um, this won't stop ICOs, but it will stop the way that they've been done so far until at least we see a framework come into place that makes them legitimate. There are about, I think, 41, 42 ICO platforms, which you can think of as analogous to Kickstarter, but intended specifically for ICOs. And so what happens is these companies and these platforms will talk with ICOs and find ones that they like, and they will essentially get an allocation. And then they'll be responsible for marketing that allocation to their particular community. The ICO delivery all of the tokens just to each individual ICO platform, and then they handle delivery within themselves. Generally, they're also an exchange, so people don't even necessarily have to take them off of an exchange and put them into their own wallet. They sometimes just leave them in, in these exchanges. So really, that's what this crackdown has been. And that's why they are able to actually enact refunds and demand refunds in some cases, because there are these large centralization points that allow for uh, easier participation in these pl- in these ICOs for the people there. But it meant that all of those people are now stuck and waiting to kind of get their tokens back. Bottom line, if all regulators can regulate as intermediaries, they are going to accelerate disintermediation. So in 20, I think it was in 2014, early 2015, at the uh, New York Law School, I believe it was, was a talk by an SEC enforcement agent about uh, blockchain-related enforcement. And he was talking about an exchange that he went after, a Bitcoin exchange. That was an unlicensed securities exchange that were selling blockchain-based securities. Uh, And he he, he talked with Glee about how they shut this down because I believe it was like in the 150 years of the existence of the SEC, it was almost unprecedented for them to go after an unlicensed securities exchange. It was this novel case study that he was talking about. (laughs) And and a, a bunch of Bitcoiners were in the room and someone just sort of says, well, what about a decentralized exchange? And he goes, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And then I just sort of spoke up and I said, well, Bitcoin is a platform that enables decentralized peer-to-peer payments. What if instead of payments, it was a network developed to handle securities? And you had a decentralized securities framework in the same way that you had a decentralized payment network through Bitcoin. How would you regulate it then? And his response to us was he took, he took a good five, 10 seconds. And he said, well, we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> You're there. <laughs> Interesting. (laughs) I do think that 2018 is going to be the year of the decentralized exchanges. And that's going to be, I think, the the time that we finally get to the point where the play never has to touch down. So if you looked at the U.S. government in, in 2013 in November when they had a congressional hearing, their policy on policing was at the at the on ramps and the off ramps. They said, look, we don't know what this crazy money is. But we know that eventually it has to become real money. Eventually it has to touch the real world. 
and that's where we're going to engage enforcement actions, and that's where we're going to look at the activity at that point, with the presumption that eventually it will have to touch the real world, under the belief that it won't stay entirely self-referential in perpetuity. And I think that 2018, with all these decentralized exchanges that have raised funds to build themselves out, will be the year where we get decentralized exchanges in quite literally the $150 billion in crypto will just stay in crypto. And you might add an extra zero to the end of that number. Yeah, you want to see merchant adoption? Keep pushing that line. Close down all of the on-ramps and off-ramps until everything stays on the freeway. The Russian uh, arm of Burger King um, announced that they're working with the Waves platform, which I believe is a delegated proof of stake platform. It's either delegated proof of stake or proof of stake. And it's sort of like an asset launching platform. And they're working with them to create Whopper coin. And basically Whopper coin will be something that you will earn as a rewards basically for purchasing food at these stores. And then you'll be able to use them. And I believe the wallet's on your phone. But again, I haven't actually tried this out myself. Be able to use them and redeem them potentially for food. And the cool part about this project from my perspective is this is actually one of the largest scale tests I believe that we've ever seen in cryptocurrency. It's actually quite hard to find sort of scaling in terms of number of users simply because onboarding all those people into wallets and making them actually care enough about the thing and actually having a, something that is valuable enough to warrant their attention is not a easy proposition. But if you're a company like Burger King, even just their Russian arm, you actually are big enough that you can create your own little mini economy around this just because of the types of food options that are available from the health perspective probably not a great economy to participate in in a large fashion but as an experiment for the technology i think it's fantastic because they i mean like again the biggest challenges that they face with this really have nothing to do with the blockchain part it's all about actually getting it into the hands of people who are actually going to use it rather than viewing it as kind of like this long-term speculative thing. So I'm excited to see this. I think this is the largest example we've seen so far of a rewards program. And I'm looking forward to seeing kind of how it develops over the next couple of months. Well, it gets even more interesting than that because there's something called the Big Mac Index in traditional economics. And it's actually for something called CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, which is how much purchasing power is lost from this year versus last year across multiple countries. The Big Mac index has been one of the best indicators for true CPI price purchasing power, which is how much has the price of a Big Mac in that country gone up in the past year? And it's an actual indicator that economists use to sort of reference against because McDonald's basically has the same margins in every single area. And McDonald's is basically a real estate company that pays uh, the property taxes and maintenance fees by being a burger company, but it's really just a property holding company. So their margins are extremely thin. And I think that everyone talks about a stable coin with utility that has intrinsic value. And I can genuinely not think of a more stable, universally accepted currency with intrinsic value than having a Big Mac coin or a Whopper coin that from now into perpetuity is redeemable for one Big Mac or one Whopper um, anywhere in the world. Maybe all our price stability problems could be solved with Burger King. <laughs> I think this appeals beautifully to the core audience of libertarian cryptocurrency fans because, you know, you see a very high preponderance of people interested in ketogenic diets and meat-based diets. So WhopperCoin having as the essential reserve currency being meat 
uh, is it is very appropriate for this solution. Seriously, though, I think the big thing here is the recognition that branding as a primary driver for tokenization. Three years ago, I predicted that every single brand, whether that's an artist, a sports team, a corporation, personal brands, all the way down to loyalty and friendship brands of children in kindergarten, would eventually reach a frenzy of tokenization and that we would have everyone having tokens in some way or another. If you think the ICO craze is crazy, just wait until global multinational brands Sports franchises, artists, etc., all start down this reward tokenization path. And I think we're seeing that with Burger King. We've seen it a few times before. It's not entirely original, but it's the biggest one yet. And I think it's a preview of what is going to come. And on a final note, I believe in Russian it's pronounced Voparkoin. <laughs> a couple of years ago, well, more than a couple of years ago at this point, it was maybe like three or four years ago, Russia tried to ban Bitcoin, didn't it? They said they did. They said they did, but obviously that that couldn't happen, didn't happen. And now Burger King in Russia is the test ground for this new cryptocurrency. So things change. Things are definitely changing. Uh, I'm kind of sitting here like the cat that ate the canary um, because a lot of the things you guys are talking about, that's what I've been working on for the last couple of years. And in the last probably six months, we really have seen an explosion in interest from actual brands that are from outside the cryptocurrency space. And it feels like something has shifted in kind of a meaningful way. So on the next episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I actually am looking forward to telling you guys about three or four of the kind of pilot projects that we have going on that are delivering kind of these brand connections to actual tokens that have utility and value. We have a partnership coming up with uh, Rocket Chat, uh, which is an open source kind of Slack-like chat project to use token controlled access and make it so people can monetize chat rooms and chat servers. And so, yeah, this year, next year, I think that, you know, we've seen not necessarily the end of the pure crypto project, but we're going to start seeing increasingly more of these projects that have crypto elements, but that don't involve crypto brands. They're about real brands now. The cypherpunk slogan, decentralize all the things, is turning into a much more mainstream capitalistic tokenize all the things, which then becomes monetize all the things. I'm not sure I'm in love with that particular development, but if it leads to a bit more decentralize all the things, I'll take it. I think that this is a middle step, really. I mean, like we've talked about it before. You know, how you get to mainstream sort of doesn't matter, but once you're at mainstream, then it's very hard to roll back any of the things that are kind of built in at the core layer. And to a certain extent, it's the thought, right? It's the thought of what we're doing here that has to become the mainstream focus. I, I do think that that's a, that's a benefit, not a bug, because in, in the 90s, the cypherpunks discovered how to engage in commerce over the internet. And now in the 10s, we're discovering how to commercialize the internet. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Featured music from Jared Rubens. If you have any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.